0: Alright, John chapter 2. We're going to read the first 12 verses. It says, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with the disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to his servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And He said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of His signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested His glory and His disciples believed in Him. Back in the 90's, there was some artwork that became very popular. When you first look at it, it just looks kind of like a pattern. But... When you get up close, and here was the idea, you're supposed to look into it deeper. And so you're supposed to stand kind of a certain distance away, and then you stare into it, and at first you don't see anything, but you keep staring until your eyes kind of go cross-eyed or get blurry. And some people are better at it than others. I struggled. I remember there was one that I stared at for quite a while, and all of a sudden there was a space shuttle there, and I was like, oh, wow, that's that's amazing. Well, the reason I bring that up this morning is because... John, in a sense, is doing that, but in a sense not, right? Because he's trying to get us to see something. Just like, I remember the first time we went to somebody's house, I think it was for dinner or something, and they had a picture on the wall, and I was kind of like, what's that? You know, and they are like, oh, here, this is really cool. Stand right here. And then they had me looking at it, and had me do a couple things to try to make your eyes do whatever they got to do to see it. And I, I don't think I ever saw it that night, but... But what were they doing? They were trying to help me see the object that was hidden in the picture. Well, John in his Gospel, you know what he's trying to do? He's trying to help us see. He's trying to help us see the glory of Christ with the outcome that we would believe. And In fact, verse 11 really sums this passage up. It says, "...for this the first of His signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested His glory and His disciples believed in Him. The word sign, as we've talked about before, is referring to His miracles. John always calls his miracles signs. Why? Because the sign communicates something. It points to something. There's information involved. And so whenever Jesus does anything miraculous, it's a sign of who He is. It's a sign of that He is the Son of God, and that He is the Deliverer of the world. We've seen people already in chapter 1 respond to Him in just that way with many different titles that they recognize as Him being. So there's the presence of these signs, these miraculous things. There's eight of them in John's Gospel that John's going to point to and say, look at what He did, look at what He did, look at what He did. He's got to be God. And so the signs are there for a purpose, and the purpose is to manifest His glory. When that happens, when you see the glory of God in the activity of Christ then the only logical response is for you to believe. Just as His disciples did in this passage, says the disciples believed in Him. You know what? All through this area of the Gospel of John, these three terms are repeated several different times. That idea of signs we find in chapter 2 a little bit farther into the chapter. When Jesus goes into the temple, He's going to flip over tables of the money changers and drive out animals that are there. And the Jewish officials are going to look to Him and say, what sign do you give? To show us you have the authority to do this. And Jesus is going to give Him a sign. He's going to offer one. He says, you're going to destroy this temple. But He wasn't talking about the temple premises. His own body, He was talking about it. He says, and three days later, I'm going to raise it up again. Later in the same chapter, John 2.23, it says, Now when He was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in His name when they saw the signs that He was doing. So remember, the purpose of the signs was to show who Jesus was. People saw those things that He did, and they believed in Him. So the signs are working. In fact, He's going to go to two individuals. John chapter 3, He's going to deal with a man named Nicodemus. John chapter 4, He's going to deal with a woman at the well. We're going to see both of those people's journey to faith in Christ. In John chapter 3, and verse 2, it says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. The people saw the signs that He did and they believed in Him. Nicodemus saw the signs that He did and He came to question Him. And he ended up believing in Him. And so the signs were working. Not only do we see the repetition of signs, but we also see the repetition of this focus on the glory of Christ. Because Christ did this miracle, it says, so that His glory would be manifested. This should remind us of John chapter 1, and verse 14. When John says this, he says, "...and the Word became flesh the Word being Christ, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, he's speaking as an eyewitness who was with Christ for three and a half years, saw His death, His resurrection, and everything else. He says, we have seen His glory. And so what is he doing? He's writing down this Gospel so that us, 2,000 years later, could see the glory of Christ. He wants us to be able to see the glory of Christ just as they saw it as Christ walked among them. So we've seen the repetition of the signs for the purpose of revealing Christ's glory. And what is the outcome of that? His disciples believed in Him. Strong emphasis on this as well. In fact, if you'll remember from our introduction to this Gospel, the Apostle John uses the word believed or believes some 80 times throughout this Gospel. That's his focus, is that we would believe. In John chapter 2, verse 22, he says, When therefore He was raised from the dead, His disciples remembered that He had said this, and they believed in him that he had said this was about him saying destroy this temple talking about his body and I'll raise it up in 3 days. And in John 2:23 as we already acknowledged what happened when a lot of people saw these signs that he did, they believed in him. If we go backwards to John chapter 1 verse 12, remember it says he came to his own and his own did not receive him. They did not welcome him, but in verse 12 it says but to all who did receive him who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And then finally I would point to, just to remind us, John chapter 20 where he gives the purpose of his writing, this whole gospel. He says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So as we look at this, what is the purpose of this miracle? And what is the purpose of John's recording of this miracle for us today? It is to reveal the glory of Christ. It's the first miracle that Christ accomplishes to show people His glory, to draw them to Himself so that they can put their faith in Him and have eternal life. Throughout this passage, we're going to see His glory in a few different facets that are pointed out in this occasion. First of all, Christ's glory is seen in the condition that we find the situation. Now, when you look at this, that was huge in their society. In fact, one of the commentators that I read on this said that if they ran out of wine, it would be like a public shame. Both families would be implicated in the shame that happened from that event. In fact, he said even possibly one that they wouldn't outlive. What do we see? It's described very simply. When the wine had run out. In other words, when they did not have enough. They came up short. You know, one guy that I was listening to on this passage, he says, you know, right in there we see a little bit of a hint of the problem of humanity and the struggles with man-made religion. Because the efforts of man-made religion and the problem with humanity is that we tend to do that. We always fall short. In fact, that's really what describes our condition before God, before we come to Christ. What does the Bible tell us in Romans chapter 3, and verse 23? says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, Jesus has entered into a situation that is falling short. It does not have the provisions necessary for this wedding ceremony. And I think you can probably read a little farther into it, just the fact that it is a wedding ceremony because that marriage relationship is used in Old and New Testament to describe the relationship of God with His people. And in this marriage, this wedding ceremony where they're uniting two people in marriage, they have fallen short on their provisions for the ceremony. And so was Jesus stepping into this situation where they are falling short? You know, we have trouble with that when it comes to the glory of God. Mankind throughout history has taken the glory of God and diminished it. You know, Adam and Eve didn't recognize it in the garden when they listened to the serpent rather than God himself. And we have been falling short of the glory of God ever since. I think also of Romans chapter 1 when he talked about the condition of the world. He actually broke it into two parts, and he looked at the, the Gentile peoples first, and that's this passage that we're going to read. After that, he looks at the Jewish people, and he basically tells them, look, you guys think you're a lot better because you've been given the Bible, you've been the chosen people of God. And he says, but you know, you don't listen to the Bible, you don't do what it says, and so you're really no better off than they are. And his final conclusion is that the whole world becomes guilty before God. But notice what he says in Romans chapter 1, beginning of verse 18, He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. You can see the glory of God just by opening your eyes and looking around you. You can see the glory of God in creation. When you look up at a starry night, you know the Bible says the heavens declare the glories of God. But you know what, even in our society today, you know what we don't tend to see in our culture too much people going and bowing down before creatures that look like part of creation and worshiping them as gods. But you know what we find? we find that they just try to get rid of God altogether. When they look at the creation, their conclusion isn't, wow, we got an amazing being that must have made all this because everything fits together and everything makes sense. And, but what do people do? They say, you know what, this all, all this stuff came from absolutely nothing. Something came from nothing and life came from non-life. And, and so what do you do with the glory of God? You take the creation of God and you drop it down and say, oh, "I could come from nothing at all. Well, that's what this passage is headed for, is what you're, how you're treating the glory of God. gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And so you see in this instance where it should have been a glorious occasion of this wedding ceremony and feast, they fell short of that glorious occasion. And what we're going to see is Christ provide for that glorious occasion. And so His glory is going to be magnified. When you look throughout human history, we have diminished the glory of God. He says we suppress the truth, which is part of the glory of God. When we knew God, we didn't honor Him as God, but we suppressed His glory, and we worshiped other things, we put priority on other things, and God doesn't sit still for that. What happens is, we choose other gods, then God gives us over to those other gods. You'll find people professing themselves to be wise, and they'll become absolute fools. And that foolish would have an immoral quality to it. To where it would take that which is natural and part of God's glorious creation, and it will twist it and pervert it and bring it into something that is against nature. And what do you see when you look around our society today? You see a society that is trying to put some of that perversion on equal standing with marriage. With real marriage. But it's an unnatural fit. And you'll see people professing themselves to be so wise that they can't even define what a woman is or what is a man. Here's a chance where you find the people falling short, but Christ in His glory is going to provide the solution. He's going to save the day. Now, the second way that we see the glory of Christ in this situation is actually in a, in a correction. Mary comes to Jesus and says to Jesus, they've run out of wine. Now, Jesus turns to Mary and he just responds to her kind of bluntly, right? Rather simply. He says, woman, which which actually would be a term of... It was politeness, but it wasn't really a term you'd use for your mom. Alright, the best equivalent for us is like the word man. And so when Mary comes to Jesus and says to Jesus, they're out of wine, he turns to her and he says, woman, what's it have to do with me? How How is this connected in me? How is this my problem? Now, it's, it's kind of interesting because you're at one point you're saying, well, why would He respond to her like that? And then she tells the servants, do whatever He tells you. Does that mean she knows He's going to have them turn uh, water into wine? Or He's going to take care of it? Or does that mean she's saying, you know what, I've been kind of put in my place, I'll just step out of this and get out of the way right now. I don't know which way it is. And then He tells them, take these six pitchers, go fill them up with water, and then He changes it in wine. So he, he fixes the problem. So why does He respond to Mary like He does? I mean, if you're going to fix the problem anyway, why bring your mom down a peg like that, right? Why, why kind of confront the issue? Why not just do it? Say, alright, got it, Mom. No biggie. Right? That's typically how you do that kind of thing if you're going to do it anyway. But He doesn't. There's really this correction that takes place. And what is happening well, it's part of the revealing of the glory of Christ. He's not the little boy at his mom's beck and call anymore. He is the Son of God. And who does He have to take orders from? He says, so Jesus said to them in John chapter 5, and verse 19, "...Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise." And so Jesus is making, I think, pretty clear here to Mary that she's not steering the ship here. There is something much bigger in motion here, and it's not my time yet. Usually when He's talking about His time, it's talking about the cross. But then He turns around and He does this miracle. Now, you know what? It's not the first time this has happened. When Christ was twelve, they make a trip to the temple to go and worship. And at the end of the trip, they leave and they realize that Jesus wasn't with them. They they thought He was with the cousins in their car and He wasn't. And so they go back looking for Him and they find Him back at the temple with the religious leaders. And He's teaching and answering and asking questions. And in Luke chapter 2, it records it for us in verse 48, it says, "...when His parents saw Him..." they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Any of you that has ever had your uh, son or daughter when they're little hide in the clothes rack in the store you're in, and all of a sudden you're panicked and not know where they are. Well, they've just endured that for like three days. And now it says, Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's house? see, Jesus even at that point starts to make this distinction. Wait a minute, he's saying, we both know who my, my father really is, don't we? Well, that's the same thing he's doing here with Mary. In fact, he does it with his whole family. He makes a definite distinction that his physical family is not getting, you would say, a preferential treatment in his being the Savior of the world. Now, thank God, they did all end up, as far as we could tell, coming to Christ and believing in Him and experiencing the same salvation. But Jesus has a much larger purpose than just going about doing the bidding of His family. In fact, Jesus draws more of a distinction later when they come looking for Him. In Matthew chapter 12, in verse 46, it says, While He was still speaking to the people, behold, His mothers and His brothers stood outside asking to speak to Him, but He replied to the man who told Him, Who is My mother and who are My brothers? And stretching out His hand toward His disciples, He said, Here are My mother and My brothers, for whoever does the will of My Father in heaven is My brother and sister and mother." He's saying, I got a father in heaven, not just a mother here on earth. And the father in heaven has to take priority. Do you know we're called to do the same thing? We cannot put our families before God. You can't put your husband, your wife before God. You're not doing them any favors if you do. You can't put your children before God. You can't put your your parents. All these are relationships that you have responsibilities in these relationships. Absolutely. And, And you have a loving relationship and attachment in all of these different relationships. But they have to take a back seat to God. In fact, in Matthew chapter 10, in verses 34 through 39, Jesus would say, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. For whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You know what? You start putting your kids ahead of your relationship with God, and you're making a big mistake that will probably be costly to you and them. Same with your spouse. Same with your parents. We've got to have those relationships right. And that's what we're seeing, I think, when we look at Jesus and this correcting of Mary. And Jesus is telling her, look, you can't be, called. You can't be set in the times of when I'm going to act and not act, and what signs I'm going to perform. That has to come from the Father. And so we see a glory of Christ that supersedes physical family relationships. Not only that, but we also see the quality of the miracle that is performed. The quality of this miracle is amazing. He says that he takes, has him get six jugs of these for water. Now, these are stone pitchers that were used for purification. So these would be like washing ceremonies. The Jews were big on washing your hands before the meals, and not just to get germs off, but like a ceremonial washing. The washing of hands, washing of dishes. That's what these big stone jars were. They weren't really for providing drinks. They were providing a lot of water for washing a lot of things. One person said these pitchers were more the pitchers that you would go to collect water for taking a bath, not getting a drink. Those pitchers would have held anywhere from 20 to 30 gallons. So you're looking at when they fill six of those pitchers, it's anywhere from 120 to 180 gallons of wine that Jesus makes for this wedding feast. The quality of this miracle is glorious in its size, right? It's just a it's just a tremendous amount of wine. Way more wine than they would need for this wedding ceremony. Jesus over-provides. And it's glorious. But not only that, but the quality of it in itself because He tells them now, take the wine and go pour it out for the guy that's in charge of distributing all the wine. And so the guy takes it and he tests it. He tastes it. And he says, well, you guys did it backwards. Usually everybody has... The good wine that you put out first, and then as you start to run out, then you bring in the lesser quality wines. He says, you guys have brought out the great wine, the best wine, last. And you know, that's the way, that's the quality of Jesus' miracles. I remember reading a book years ago called Power Religion, and it looked into all these faith healing movements and stuff like that. And you know what they found? They said, we find that most of the things that people are healed from are psychosomatic things, things that you can't really prove one way or the other. I didn't even realize before I read this book. Did you know that you're actually not allowed to just walk up in those services to receive the healing? You actually got to. You got to. They send a tent a couple of weeks before they get there, and they interview people to see who can come forward in those services. You know what? Here's the point. You know when Jesus healed people, there was no denying it. He healed somebody one time that was blind from birth. Everybody in the whole society said nobody's ever seen anybody get sight who never had it before. Cripple people, a guy that gets carried in on a mat walks out carrying the mat. Do you know how many months of therapy you'd have to go through after being paralyzed before you could carry yourself, never mind a mat? You see, Jesus, when He did miracles, they weren't questionable. You weren't curious as to whether a miracle actually took place. It screamed at you. And that's what Jesus does here. He takes water, and these guys all know it's water, and they're the one that filled the pitchers, and lots of it, and He changes it to the best wine that they've ever had. So the quality of this miracle is amazing and it's glorious. And in that, we see the glory of Christ. And lastly, what I would call the coronation. The reason that I call it that is because... This turning of the water into wine looks like a fulfillment of prophecy. If you look back into the Old Testament, there's many different places in Joel, Amos, in Jeremiah, Isaiah. When God tells Israel, there's coming a day when I'm going to restore everything and I'm going to restore Israel. And I'm going to bless. And each time he mentions those blessings, he mentions a huge presence of wine. Now, let's not go too far and get carried away and distort and pervert the glory of God again and say that Jesus is condoning drunkenness because all the way throughout the Bible, the Bible condemns drunkenness. Drunkenness is evidence that you're lacking God in your life. It's as simple as that. And drunkenness leads to and is part of the judgment of God, Old Testament, New Testament. The Bible tells us to to not yield ourselves to drunkenness, but rather let the Spirit have control is what we're supposed to do. But that aside, the presence of wine is also seen as prosperity, booming business and growing economy and things flourishing. Benjamin Franklin said that that wine was proof that God wants us to be happy. That's not a, a bad picture of it when you look at it in the Bible because wine was always a big part. Just like at this wedding, it was a big part of celebrations and festivals and celebrations of God. The presence of wine was a symbol of even the blessing of God. Joel chapter 2 verses 18 and 19 it says then, the Lord became jealous for his land. So this is just after he talked about how the people rebelled against God, they ignored the glory of God, and so God gave them over to their enemies, and there's going to be this time that just sweeps through and just burns everything up and everything's destroyed. And there's going to be a time of locust, this swarm of locusts that was going to come on the place. But then he says, you know what, maybe, maybe the mercy of God is still available. If you guys will rend your heart and not your garments, And cry out to God, maybe God will respond in a favorable way. And this is what it says in Joel chapter 2. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending you grain and wine and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. In chapter 2, verses 24 through 26 says the threshing floors Joel chapter three and verse eighteen, talking about when the Lord returns, says, "In that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk and the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water and the fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim." Amos chapter nine. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of My people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. You see the point that I'm trying to make with that word coronation is that Christ, by providing this abundance of wine, more than they could possibly use for the ceremony, shows Himself to be the one that belongs on the throne. The promises to Israel down through the ages is when the Messiah gets here and God dwells with you, the mountains will be streaming with new wine. You can't even harvest the crops fast enough. The plowman is catching up from you behind because it takes you so long to harvest so much of the Fruit of the vine that produces the wine because that's how God pours out His blessing upon His people. For years, to be honest with you, I looked at this and thought, what a weird first sign. If you're going to do a bunch of signs to show who you are, why just turning water to wine? Listen to me, just turning water to wine. Just turning water to wine at somebody's wedding, why did that make the cut to be the first, the first one? It's pretty clear. It's not just because Mom asked. It had to be the will of the Father. But it was the will of the Father. And why was it the will of the Father? Because God was just giving us a little picture of who Jesus is. Jesus is that glorious One that's going to come. And in His day, the day of the Lord, you're going to flow with wine. And this is one little indication that He's that guy. You see, in this passage, we see the glory of Christ. We see it because of the condition. We fall short. right? We don't measure up. We need Christ to provide in our life because of the correction. He's not being pulled around by, by His mom. This is the sovereign will of God to perform this miracle at this time. The very first of Christ's miracles. And the quality of it was unarguably a miracle. And all of that points to the fact that He's the one that needs to be on the throne.